0: May 5, 1993, Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers were seen throughout their neighborhood, riding around on their bikes and playing, between the time when school got out at 2.55 p.m. and 7 p.m. when they went missing, never to be seen alive again. Months later, there were two trials, which resulted in the conviction of three individuals for the murders of Christopher, Stevie, and Michael. At these trials, only a handful of people testified as witnesses who saw the boys on that fateful afternoon. However, in reality, there was not just a handful of witnesses who saw the boys. In fact, I have documented in front of me right now a total of 39 separate sightings of the boys that day. Of these 39 sightings, the majority of them have been dismissed by both investigators and individuals who have studied the case for decades. The reason that so many people have dismissed these witness statements is because of the fact that they don't fit with the presumed narrative of what was going on that afternoon with Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. But today we're going to look at all of these statements in a completely new light. We're going to throw away preconceived notions and assess each statement for its own validity and compare it to the quote, no" narrative and see if investigators may have gotten it wrong. We're going to begin today by breaking down one of the most controversial witness statements in this entire case. And that's the statement of Jamie Clark Ballard. Jamie didn't come forward and write her affidavit until 2009, 16 years after the murders. This fact alone has caused a lot of people to dismiss her statement, claiming that if she really had this information, she should have come forward sooner. In Jamie's defense, and as she writes in her affidavit, She didn't come forward with this information because she didn't know that it was relevant. As you should recall from episode 501, Jamie claims that she saw Stevie, Michael, and Christopher all together around 6.30 p.m. on May 5th between her house and Stevie Branch's house. And she says that she saw Stevie's stepfather, Terry Hobbs, yell at the boys to get back down to his house. If her account is true... She likely would have assumed that Stevie's stepfather Terry Hobbs would have told investigators that he indeed saw the boys and when and where he saw them. There are also other points of concern with Jamie's statement, one of them being the fact that the producers of the documentary West of Memphis had put up a billboard back in 2007 offering reward money for anyone with information. Many people have claimed that Jamie Clark Ballard could have given this information simply to receive the money. I personally have no confirmation as to whether she did or did not receive any money, and I'm hoping to at some point follow up directly with Jamie Clark Ballard as we move along with the investigation. But for now, let's break down some of the key points in the affidavit written by Jamie Clark Ballard in 2009. Jamie's affidavit in paragraph 6 states, On May 5, 1993, I walked home from school with Ryan Clark, like I did most days. On my way home, I passed the Byers' house. Mark Byers was in the driveway yelling to Ryan, telling him to find his brother, Christopher, and to tell him to come home. This happened at approximately 3.15 to 3.30 on May 5, 1993. She goes on to say, "Between the hours of 5:30 and 6:30 p.m, I saw Stevie Branch, Michael Moore and Christopher Byers playing in my backyard." Then in paragraph nine, at 6:30 pm. on May 5, 1993, which was a Wednesday, my sister and I went out the front door of my house to go out to the car to meet the people who were picking us up to take us to Wednesday Night Youth Group. As I came out into the front yard, I saw Stevie Branch, Michael Moore and Christopher Byers come racing between my house and the house next door. It was in the direction of the Hobbs house. As Stevie, Michael, and Christopher came zooming by, I yelled to Christopher, quote, Christopher, Ryan says for you to get home. Because I remember that Mark Byers had told Ryan to find Christopher and get him home. Christopher smarted off to me and said, I don't have to do what you say. I shrugged and said, okay, don't go home. While I was out in the front yard in the evening of May 5th, 1993, Terry Hobbs hollered at Stevie, Michael, and Christopher to get back down to the Hobbs house. I recall that Stevie was on a bike. The first detail in Jamie Clark Ballard's statement that people have called into question is the fact that she only says that Stevie was on a bike. Now, she doesn't say that the other two were not on bikes, but if that's the implication, it would seem to conflict with the facts of the case. And that's the fact that Michael Moore was also on his bike that afternoon. The next item that some people call into question is paragraph 13. It reads as follows, the next day I saw Ryan at school and he was very upset. Ryan told me that the boys had never come home and that the police had found the bodies of Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. Ryan was so upset. He told me that the boys had been killed. I said something like, what, I just saw your brother last night playing in my backyard. Ryan was crying and said to me, why didn't you tell my brother to come home? That really upset me and I told Ryan I did tell him to come home. They let out school and everyone went home after that. The conflict here is the fact that as far as we know, Ryan didn't go to school the day after the boys went missing. And therefore, it would be odd for Jamie Clark Ballard to have a distinct memory of having a conversation with Ryan at school on the afternoon after the bodies were found. This is another point that we need to dig into deeper and try to figure out once and for all if Ryan did indeed go to school that day. We do know that some of the family members at one point went to the school looking for the three boys, but that would have been a different school. Stevie, Michael, and Christopher went to Weaver Elementary School, whereas Ryan and Jamie went to the junior high. The last point I want to discuss in Jamie Clark Ballard's statement is paragraph 14. In this paragraph, she says, Following the murders, the police never came to interview me or my family. In fact, after the murders, I do not recall ever seeing any police vehicles on my street or see any police interviewing any of the people in my neighborhood. This would go to further support the idea that the West Memphis Police Department only ever canvassed the northwest corner of the neighborhood, completely ignoring the home, neighborhood, and even the victimology of Stevie Branch, who was the only one that lived on the south end of the neighborhood. At this point, in my opinion, Jamie Clark Ballard's statement is still up for question. And that's because not only do we have the conflict of her saying only that Stevie was on a bike, but also she distinctly remembers having a conversation with Ryan at school after the boys' bodies were found. In my opinion, this recollection is unlikely to be accurate. Even if Ryan had gone to school that day, I can't imagine that after he was told that his brother was dead, that he would have remained at school. The junior high was only about 200 yards from the crime scene and it would have been very easy for him to leave the school and meet his mother and stepfather or for them to come get him. The other issue that we have, as you're going to hear as we go through the rest of the sightings, is that Jamie Clark Ballard's statement seems to conflict with several other witness statements. If you were to put a map on the wall of the neighborhood and put a pin everywhere where there was a sighting, at the end of the day you'd have 38 pin marks all in the northwest corner of the neighborhood And one single pin in the south end. And that's Jamie Clark Ballard's statement. And a few of the statements that you're going to hear as this episode moves along put the boys at the exact same time, right around 6.30, in the north end of the neighborhood. But all that being said, we do have another affidavit that corroborates Jamie Clark Ballard's. And that's an affidavit written in 2009 by her mother, Deborah Moyer. In paragraph 6 of Deborah Moyer's affidavit, she writes, Certain members and sponsors of the group would pick Jamie and Brandy up around 6.30 p.m. and take them to the church youth group meetings on Wednesday nights. May 5, 1993 was a Wednesday night. On May 5, two sponsors of the youth group came by at approximately 6.30 p.m. to pick up Jamie and Brandy to go to the youth group meeting. She goes on to say, At approximately 6.30 p.m., when I saw that my daughter's ride was out front, I walked out the front door with Jamie and Brandy to see them off and to say hello to the sponsors. I was going to then go around the corner of the house and tell the boys to stop playing in my backyard. A previous part of both of their statements were that Jamie, her sister Brandy, and her mother Deborah had all seen the boys prior to this playing in the backyard by the creek. She goes on to say As I walked out the front door, though, I saw the three boys who had been playing in the backyard, including the blonde one who lived down the street, come through between my house and the house to the left of mine. The blonde one was on a bike, and the other two were running behind him. At the same time I was in front of my house seeing the boys go between the houses, I saw the man who lived down the street with the blonde boy, whom I believed to be the blonde boy's father, yelling for the three boys to get down to his house. He was walking up the sidewalk talking loud to the little blonde boy and telling all the boys to get down to his house. Through the years, at different times when the murders came up, my daughter Jamie and I would talk about the three boys playing in the backyard that night. I could never understand why no police officer ever came to interview me or my daughters. In fact, I never saw any police officers canvassing the neighborhood interviewing folks about the murders. While Deborah Moyer's affidavit does corroborate Jamie Clark Ballard's, she goes into a little more detail regarding the bikes. She specifically states that only Stevie Branch was riding a bike, and the other two boys were running behind him. Again, this is something that many people have called into question about both of their statements. But it's important to point out that just because Michael Moore might not have been on his bike at that point doesn't mean that he hadn't set it down in front of another house and they were running to go get it. We're going to circle back to Michael Moore and his bike later in the episode. But for now, let's move on to the note that we discovered last week. This was the note in the door-to-door canvassing that simply states, Jamie Clark, South Macaulay. It was written in the margin of a page right next to a note for 809 North 14th Street, a Mrs. Patti Smith. We have no explanation as to why Jamie's name appears on this document. As I said earlier, it is written right next to Patti Smith's name. However, the name below Patti Smith's, a Miss Etta Keene, has a star next to it, possibly indicating that that's the note that the name is attached to. Unfortunately, for now, we don't know what the answer is. We do know that Patti Smith does have a vague connection to Jamie Clark. Patti Smith has a daughter named Britt Smith. Britt is good friends with Ryan Clark, Christopher Byer's brother. Britt was one of the people helping search that night with Ryan. So the loose connection here is that Jamie Clark Ballard knows Ryan Clark, Ryan Clark knows Britt Smith, and Britt Smith is Patti Smith's daughter. Therefore, we can make a connection from Jamie Clark Ballard to Patti Smith, and that's only relevant if the note written in the margin is attached to Patti Smith's name. And there's no indication that there is other than its proximity on the page. But the implication would be, and the assumption that I've come to, that the only reason for Jamie Clark's name to be written on that paper, along with the street she lives on, is that someone told the officer that he needs to talk to Jamie Clark because she knows something. We're going to circle back around to Jamie Clark Ballard's statement. But before we do, we're going to move forward into analyzing the other 38 sightings of Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers. I've broken down these sightings, most of them taking from the 140-page handwritten notes from when the police went door-to-door canvassing. I've broken the sightings down into several groups, and the first group of sightings that we're going to discuss are the non-specific sightings. These are the sightings that many people consider throwaways because they either don't name the boys, they don't give a specific number of boys, or they don't give a specific time. There are 14 of these nonspecific sightings in total. If you're following along in the door-to-door notes, the first sighting we're going to talk about comes on page 29, and it's from 704 Wilson Street. The note simply says, B.B. Barnett saw the boys after school. It doesn't say which of the three boys, if it's all the three boys, and it doesn't give a specific time. Next on the same page, we move down to 808 Wilson. There, Thelma Roebuck says, saw boys riding bikes about 4 p.m. on Wednesday. Now, again, we have a time here. It's 4 o'clock, but the note doesn't go into any detail as to how many of the boys are which boys she saw. You're going to see that this is a recurring theme as we move through these notes. And it's again one of the most frustrating parts of the West Memphis Police Department's investigation is they paid no attention and spent no time on victimology. Every one of these notes where anyone saw the boys should have been followed up and specifically noted how many boys they saw, which boys they saw, what were they doing, which direction were they going, so they could piece together an accurate timeline of the boys' movements. But instead, the officer writes down the note and moves down to the next door. Next, we move on to page 41, and this is from 1307 Goodwin Street. The note reads, Wife was home around 6 p.m. States she saw the boys riding their bikes in the area. Again here, we don't know which of the boys she saw or if she saw all of them. Then we go to page 65 at 1105 Little Elton Road. The note reads, Michael thought that he saw kids about 6 p.m. Wednesday with a white male somewhere between where he works at Pool Trucking and 1105 Little Elton. And again here, there's no further follow-up from police as far as how many boys he saw, where exactly he saw them, or anything else. And this one is a huge oversight by police because not only is this a sighting of the boys, but the note says that the boys were with a white male. So keep in mind, these officers are investigating the murders of these three boys. They're trying to find out who hunted them down and killed them. This person says that they saw the boys with a white male, and the police never followed up. Next, we move on to page 101. This one comes from 1605 Goodwin. The note reads, New boys by name, seen them at 14th and Barton. So 14th and Barton is the intersection where both Michael Moore and Christopher Byers live, but again, it doesn't say which boys, how many boys, or what time they saw them. Next, we move on to page 102 at 1104 East Barton. This note says, Mr. Barr, 630, seen boys playing with two girls on school grounds, in parentheses, East Junior High, out his rear window. states the boys had, in parentheses, three bikes, wants to be helpful. So here we have a witness who says he saw, quote, boys, it doesn't say these boys or how many boys, playing with two girls on the school grounds. It sounds like Mr. Barr is just telling the police that he saw some boys, not necessarily that he saw Michael, Christopher, and Stevie. Then we move down to page 119. This one is from the Mayfair Apartments in unit number 89. Jamie Johnson stated he saw these boys that evening. That's it. Doesn't say what time, if it was all three of them. It's assumed that it is because police were showing people pictures of the boys. But again, there's no time here. So someone at the Mayfair apartments is telling police that he saw the boys that evening. Next, we go down to page 121 at 1101 Goodwin Circle. We have a Miss Rita Greaves, and her note says, saw boys about 9 p.m. Now, this note could be a false sighting, given the fact that she says she saw the boys at 9 p.m. when there was a full-effort search going on at that point. And it also doesn't say that she saw these boys. It just says she saw boys. We move on to page 127. Again, they are at Mayfair Apartments. This note was written in the margin and not connected to any particular unit. It says, Corner Grocery Liquor Store. Saw boys last night. Again, no time, no number of boys. As we move on down to page 130, we come to 1006 East Barton. The note reads, Ann Shockley has friend that saw boys. Then it says, Cindy, call after 6 p.m. This seems like a relevant lead, but I have no further information on who Cindy is and if the police ever contacted her. Next, we go to page 131 at 910 East Barton. This note is circled on the page. We would presume that means the police thought this one was important. The note's hard to read, and it's short. It says, Josh, a word I can't read. Then it says, Weaver. Then it says, May have saw boys. Again, completely nonspecific. Further down that page, we go to 1000 East Barton, where we have a note from Dennis Murray, who says, saw three boys, 3.30 to 4 p.m., leaving school east. Now, there may be more to this note. It was cut off at the bottom of the page. But again, it just says, saw three boys. It doesn't say if he saw the three boys. So we don't know if this is a credible sighting or not. move down a couple pages to page 133. That's where the Jamie Ballard note is in the margin. And we have at 809 North 14th Street, Patty Smith, nothing. But then after it says nothing, it says, before 6 p.m., saw boys going south. This one, again, is nonspecific. And also keep in mind, it's also the name that may be tied to the note in the margin about Jamie Clark. And our last nonspecific note comes from page 135 at 710 Macaulay Circle. This note says Joe in a last name I can't read, and it says 6 p.m. saw boys, North 14th Street. Again, doesn't say how many boys or which boys, just that he saw boys on North 14th. (music) The next category of notes on sightings that we're going to cover are the sightings that fit with the currently perceived narrative. And that's the narrative that Pam Hobbs picked Stevie up from school and walked home with him, Michael Moore walked directly home from school. Michael then asked his mother if he could go ride bikes with Stevie. He left, went down to Stevie Branch's house. Pam Hobbs gave Stevie permission to go ride bikes with Michael, but told him to be home before 5 o'clock. And they rode off. Shortly after they rode off, Christopher Byer shows up at Pam's house, watches the Muppet Babies with her younger daughter Amanda for about 15 minutes, and then he leaves. We still, to this point, don't know the whereabouts of Stevie and Michael from the time they left the Hobbs house until about 5.30. That's because no one testified at trial that accounted for that time. We also don't know the whereabouts of Christopher Byers from after school until he showed up at the Hobbs house, or from about 4 p.m. when he left the Hobbs house until 5.30 when he was found by his father riding his skateboard down the middle of the street by his home. It's believed that around 6 p.m. the three boys hooked up together, they were riding around the neighborhood, And around 7 p.m., they went across the pipe bridge into the woods where they were ultimately killed. So this next group of notes are going to be the sightings that support that narrative. The first group of sightings we're going to cover are the sightings of Michael and Stevie together. There are seven of them in total. The first one comes on page eight of the notes. at 707, Wilson. This note is from Ben Crafton, who's 15 years old. The note says, Ben saw Branch and Moore kids on bikes, Wednesday, 6 p.m., going towards Goodwin. Kim Williams was with them. And we'll talk about Kim Williams more in just a little bit. The next note is from the same page at 713, Wilson. This note is from eight-year-old Jason Goebel. The note says, Jason saw two boys on bikes around 6 p.m. Wednesday. Then we move down to page 24. at 7.16, Holiday. This note reads, Bruce Jackson saw two of the boys playing in their yard with a large dog just a couple of minutes after 5 p.m. Wednesday. This is the first note that we've seen that starts to fill in the gap as far as finding out where Stevie and Michael were between 4 and 5.30. Apparently at about 5 p.m. they were in the yard of Bruce Jackson at 716 Holiday. Then we move down to page 28 at 824 Holiday. This note reads, Christy Blanchard saw two of the boys, one with a scout t-shirt and one with a white t-shirt at approximately 5:15 on Wednesday riding bikes. If you were to look at a map, Holiday Drive is a horseshoe-shaped street that connects to Wilson Drive at both ends. Wilson Drive runs parallel to 14th Street where both Michael and Christopher lived. Next, we move down to page 29. at 720 Wilson. This note reads, Bruce Williams' daughter Kimberly has been interviewed by Inspector Gitchell. Now, this would be Kimberly Williams that was mentioned by Ben Crafton earlier. She's the girl who gave the statement that says that she saw Stevie and Michael going into the Robin Hood woods right at the dead end of 14th and Goodwin She says that they left their bikes on the side of the road and went into the woods. She also mentions Dawn Moore, Michael Moore's older sister. And she says that three boys came out of the woods, two black and one white, and the boys offered Dawn Moore a shot. Then we move down to page 33. at 720 North 14th Street. This note reads, R.L. Fountain saw two of the boys Wednesday around 3.30 on bicycles, north on North 14th Street. And then lastly, on page 112, we have a note from 1202 Weecat Street. That's on the very north end of the neighborhood, right near the crime scene. This note is from Alan Bailey Jr. The note reads, Alan said Michael said he had to hurry to leave, and Stevie wouldn't talk at 5.45. Both boys had backpacks, green, Stevie had red shorts with white shoes. They were going to pick up Chris. Now, the only issue here with Alan Bailey Jr.'s statement is that he says that Stevie was wearing red shorts, when in fact Stevie Branch was wearing blue jeans. But as we look at all of these notes together, we can start to fill in the timeline of where Stevie and Michael were after they left the Hobbs house. It seems that they must have went north on 14th Street, and turned east onto Wilson Drive before they came to the intersection of 14th and Barton, where Michael and Christopher lived. They went north on Wilson to Holiday Drive and were riding around that neighborhood around 5 to 530. After that they made their way to the north end of Wilson to Goodwin Street and over into the Robin Hood Woods area. Then around 545 they came out of the woods, went to Alan Bailey's house, and told him that they were going to go pick up Chris. We have two notes that indicate sightings where people saw Christopher Byers alone. Aside from the statement of Pam Hobbs that he had stopped by her house right after Michael and Stevie left, we have a note from page 132, and that comes from 808 Wilson Drive. And this is the note that we've covered several times, and that's the Bobby Posey note. Again, to refresh your memory, it says, Marjorie Posey, Bobby Posey, Chris said Daddy whipped him and he was going to run away. Carlos Seals, 808 Wilson. And under that, it says, Chris left and Dad came to door and asked Carlos where Chris. There's a hyphen, and it says, on Goodwin, and Dad stated, going to have to whip him again. Bobby went to Carlos' house and stayed till 8 o'clock. And the only other note we have of someone who saw Christopher Byers alone comes on page 135 at 703 North 14th Street. This note simply reads, LaKeisha Freeman. Play with Chris on Skateboard. So far, all of the notes that we've gone over seem to support the narrative that Stevie and Michael were playing together and Chris was playing alone until around 6 p.m. This next group of notes are sightings of people who said that they saw all three boys together. And the first comes on page 8 at 719 Wilson. This one comes from Jeff Martins, who's age 18. The note reads, He saw all three on bikes, 6.30 p.m., headed towards Robin Hood area. Then on page 30 at 1309 Goodwin, the note just reads, Odinger have statement. Deborah Odinger testified at trial. She lives right at the corner of Goodwin and Goodwin Circle, right across the street from the entrance into Robin Hood Woods. The only issue with Deborah Odinger is that her statements seem to be all over the place. She talked to police several times and testified at two different trials, and every time her account of the incident seems to change just a little bit. Sometimes she says that she knows Chris Byers, other times saying she didn't know the boys but was able to identify them later, her time shift between 5.30 and 6-ish, sometimes the boys are in her yard, sometimes they are riding by, and in one statement she said that she saw two boys on one bike, then one boy following on foot. It would appear that Deborah Odinger did indeed see the boys that evening, or at least some of the boys, but it seems like she didn't pay close enough attention to remember any details. And as time went on, she kept trying to fill in the gaps in her memories, which resulted in inconsistent statements. The next note we have is from page 113 at 1117. WeCAT. This statement is from a Curtis Pennington, and it reads Her brother thought they saw Kid at Ingram and Broadway at 5 p.m. Three Boys on Two Bicycles. Now, this statement would seem to be accurate. Three Boys on Two Bicycles certainly matches the description. The only issue is, Ingram and Broadway is about a mile and a half away from all of the other sightings. The intersection of Ingram and Broadway is all the way at the very southeast corner of the neighborhood. And in fact, it's on the other side of the bayou from the neighborhood, the bayou that runs along the south edge. It seems like a long ways away from all of the other sightings. The next note is from page 114 at 1602 Goodwin. This note from Michael Smith and it reads, Daughter saw them on bikes at 6 p.m. at entrance to Robin Hood, just west of 14th and Goodwin. This sighting certainly seems credible. It specifically says that she saw them, assuming she was looking at the pictures of the boys. Gives a specific time at 6 p.m and a specific location at the entrance into the Robin Hood woods. Then we move down to page 121 at 1119 Goodwin Circle. The note reads, John and Susan, in a last name that I can't read, and it says, Juvenile son Nicholas saw boys about 6.30 p.m. This is one of those statements that would seem to conflict with the statement of Jamie Clark Ballard. Goodwin Circle is way up in the north end of the neighborhood, right near the entrance to Robin Hood Woods, and it says that the son saw the boys around 6.30 p.m., which is about the same time that Jamie Ballard says that she saw the boys on the south end of the neighborhood, almost three-quarters of a mile away. Now, these next few sightings are outside of the door-to-door notes, but are found in police statements. One of them is from Dana Moore, Michael Moore's mother, She says that she saw all three boys headed north on 14th around 6 p.m. Then we move on to Chris Wall, and he said that while he was on his way home from night school, he saw Chris Byers with a blonde boy on a single bike. as we've mentioned in previous episodes, Chris says the sighting occurred between 6.45 and 7 p.m. It is believed to be the last known sighting of the boys alive. The boys were on West Macaulay, headed in the direction of the dead end in Pipe Bridge. That's important to point out here that Chris Wall doesn't say anything about Michael Moore, only Chris Byers on the back of a blonde boy's bike. He does know Christopher Byers, and his account would be consistent with Christopher riding with Stevie Branch. And we know that Michael Moore was found with the two in the direction that they were riding, so it would be speculation, but we may be able to assume that Michael Moore was either ahead of or behind the boys on his own bike. When we return from a short break, we're going to start breaking down the sightings of the boys that conflict with the quote, known narrative. This next note is the first one that we find that seems to conflict with what everyone thinks they know about the boys' movements that afternoon. This note comes from page 28 from 709 Wilson Street. It's from Sheila Dunlap, and it reads, Boys, Chris and Michael, spoke with their son at about 4.30 p.m. Stated that they were just playing, did not mention anything else. This is an obvious variation from what we think we know. No one has ever reported that Chris and Michael were together without Stevie. But when we look at the other sightings and think about what we actually do know, we don't have any other sightings where we know where the boys were at around 4.30 in the afternoon. There's a big blank space as to where Christopher was, and no one is saying where Stevie and Michael were. So in my opinion, we can't rule out the fact that at 4.30, that Christopher and Michael were together, and Stevie wasn't there. And also keep in mind that this address, 709 Wilson, is located almost directly behind Christopher Byers' house. Let's go ahead and put the idea that Michael and Christopher were together at 4.30 and Steve wasn't with them on the back burner for now. And let's move on to this next series of statements that could possibly indicate that there was a fourth boy traveling with Stevie, Michael, and Christopher that afternoon. The first note comes on page 6 at the Mayfair Apartments, unit number 55. This note is from a Catherine Fleming. It says, saw the three boys in the area about 5 p.m. riding their bicycles. Now at a glance, this note may seem insignificant, but read it again. The three boys, and they were riding their bicycles. The implication here is that there were three boys and three bicycles problem with that is that Christopher Byers didn't have a bicycle. And let's also point out that the other sightings of the boys around five o'clock were all over on Holiday Circle, and all of those sightings were with Stevie Branch and Michael Moore together. No Christopher Byers. Next, let's move on to a statement that's not found in the door-to-door notes, but's found in the police files. And this is a statement by Ms. Narling Hollingsworth. Now, that's a name that we're going to hear a lot more about as we move through our investigation. But for now, we want to focus in on a statement where she says that around 4.30 p.m., she dropped her nephew off at 7.14 Macaulay Circle. And Macaulay Circle is another horseshoe within the horseshoe of Holiday Drive. She says that she saw three boys on Barton near Weaver Elementary School after she dropped off her nephew. Geographically speaking, she would have come out of Holiday onto Wilson, went south to Barton, turned west, and would have crossed the intersection of 14th and Barton, where both Michael and Christopher lived, and then continued on past Weaver Elementary. I'm going to read to you now a section from the transcripts from when Narlene Hollingsworth interviewed with Officer Hester at the West Memphis Police Department. Narlene, okay, they were just before you go to Weaver School, and then they were going so fast on that bicycle. And then one of them come out in front of me and I honked at him and told him he needed to get out of the street, you know, before he gets run over. Officer Hester, describe these boys that you saw. Nerlin Hollingsworth. Okay, there was two smaller boys and a little heavy-set boy, a little heavier than the rest of them. And the little heavy-set one had a little bit darker hair than the rest of them. If I'm not mistaken, the little heavy-set boy had on a pair of green shorts with some black on it, with black and white tennis shoes on. But I think they all three were wearing shorts. But I'm not really sure about the other two because I got a good look at the little dark-headed boy. That's the one that I can really describe better than the rest. Officer Hester. Okay, were they all three on bikes? Arlene. They were all three on bicycles. Yes, they were. And nice bicycles. Officer Hester. What did the bicycles look like? Arlene. One head looked like some black in it, and I believe one of them had some light green in it if I'm not mistaken. As a side note, Stevie Branch's bike was red and black, and Michael Moore's bike was green. Back to the statement. But all three of those boys were together, two in front and one in the back, and they were flying on them bicycles. And I told them, little boys, you ought to go home. And that little boy said, no, we're going to play for a little while. So they were headed, where's that street? Then Hester tells her, this is Barton. So here we have this statement that around 4:30 Narlene Hollingsworth says she sees three boys on bikes. One of the bikes was green, one of the bikes had some black in it, and she describes one of the boys as being heavier than the other two and that he was wearing shorts. Well, there's several problems with this statement that have caused a lot of people to disregard it. Number one, none of the three boys were wearing shorts, Number two, all three boys were almost exactly the same size and neither of them could be considered heavy set. And number three, again, Christopher Byers didn't have a bike. But if we couple this statement, the other statement that we just read from the Mayfair Apartments, that there were three boys on bicycles, I believe that there's a distinct possibility that the third boy in that group was not Christopher Byers, that it was in fact another fourth little boy was traveling with them on that afternoon. As we move along through the police files, we find three other witness statements that would add some credibility to the fact that there may have been a fourth boy traveling with the group. The first one is from a man named Brian Woody. Brian gave statements to police stating that while he was on his way home from work between 6.30 and 6.45, he observed four white males with two bikes heading into the Robin Hood area off of Goodwin. Brian's mother lives at 1823 Goodwin, which is just east of the entrance to Robin Hood Woods. In an undated police note, Brian told detectives, quote, he remembers one of the boys have blonde hair in a spike because his little boy has the same hairstyle. Then in a report dated May 28th, Woody tells Officer Hester, that he saw the boys on the night of the fifth he says in the statement that two of the boys were pushing bicycles one was carrying a skateboard and the fourth boy was empty-handed the next day he went to his mother's house at lunchtime and his mother asked if he had heard about the missing boys he had not then after watching the news he went to the area where searchers were still looking for the boys The statement says that he came across mark byers at 14th and goodwin and this would have been between 12 and 1 p.m. on the 6th, and told him what he had seen. He then returned home to pick up a three-wheeler and assisted with the search. This was within an hour of when Michael Moore's body was found. Then in September, Woody returned to the station and gave a written statement, where he relayed the same information to the police. And Brian Woody wasn't the only person to go into the West Memphis Police Department on September 7th. We also have a statement written by a Betty Lou Martins. Betty Lou's statement says that she and her son Jeff saw the boys around 5 p.m. on May 5th. She indicates that she had previously told police that there were three children, but upon thinking back to the event, she, quote, realized that there was a fourth boy with Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. And then we have another statement by Jeff Martins. Jeff Martin's name came up in the door-to-door notes where he said that he saw the boys that evening, but he came in on the same day as his mother to update his statement. It says, quote, We saw the boys on May 5th on Goodwin. There was one boy riding, the other boy on the handlebars, and one riding a bike by himself, and one walking. They waved to us, my mother said, who's that? And I said, some of Sam's brother's friends. And this was about 5.30 in the afternoon. I went to a doctor appointment and later that night when we came home ryan was in my driveway and asked us have we seen his brother we told him we saw him on goodwin with his friends and he said that he had went to goodwin twice and couldn't find him that's five different witnesses who've all given accounts to police indicating that stevie michael and christopher weren't alone that afternoon the question that we should be asking ourselves is, is there a mysterious fourth boy that was playing with him that day? And if so, who is he? In this last section of notes, I'm going to read to you three different witness statements. When I read them to you, you're going to notice a serious problem in how they compare to the quote, known narrative. On page 3 of the handwritten notes at 722 North 14th Street, the note reads as follows. Jerry Walker, the day of the disappearance, the Moore boy was calling two black males' names in front of their residence. Then on page 32 at 1202 Proctor, Michael Thomas' daughter is in class with Michael Moore. Saw on Wednesday at 4 to 4.30 playing with Redacted told her he had a secret hideout behind Mayfair and was going to go down there. The only explanation that I can come up with as to why the name of the person that Michael Moore was playing with is redacted is that it was a juvenile that wasn't Stevie or Christopher. And I believe the next note gives us a clue as to what name was redacted. The next note is from page 32 at 1110 Elton, which is just a couple houses down from the previous note at 1202 Proctor. This note reads, Doris Gately, grandson Trey, white male, seven. Michael Moore played with him Wednesday. Didn't say where he was going to when he left. What's missing from all three of those statements? The answer is Stevie Branch. Let's rewind all the way back to the beginning in Pam Hobbs. Pam told Stevie that she had to be to work at five o'clock and he was to return home before that for dinner. He didn't show up before she left and her husband Terry had to take her to work. We then have this statement from both Jamie Clark Ballard and her mother Deborah, who both said that they saw the boys between their house and the Hobbs' house, and Terry Hobbs telling the boys to, quote, get back down there. Then we have the note from 709 Wilson, where Sheila Dunlap says that Christopher and Michael were playing with her son at about 4.30 p.m., the very time that Stevie Branch was supposed to be back at home having dinner. Then we moved to 722 North 14th Street where we have the statement of Jerry Walker who specifically names Michael Moore. His note says the Moore boy was calling two black males names in front of their residence. Where was Stevie? Then we go to 1202 Proctor, where Michael Thomas' daughter says that she saw Michael Moore between 4 and 4.30 playing with an unnamed person, No Stevie. And lastly, we move around the corner to 1110 Little Elton, where Doris Gately also specifically names Michael Moore. She says that he played with her grandson Trey that day, but he didn't say where he was going. When he left, when we don't cherry pick individual statements, but include all 39 into our analysis of the timeline as to where all three of the boys were on that afternoon, we simply cannot ignore the fact that there are several indications that there is a mysterious fourth boy riding around with them that day. And the fact that right around the time when Stevie Branch was supposed to go home, Michael Moore was spotted by four different people without Stevie. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music of the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. And also thank you to Katie Ross of InTandemDesigns.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Stephanie McConnell, Sarah Mueller, and Anna Dindorf. And also thank you to Shane Yoder, who designed and created our Season 5 logo. And also, I want to thank all of you for all of your engagement and support as we've tackled this massive case. As I mentioned in the Friday follow-up, we're now going to be off for two weeks. We won't be returning until the Friday follow-up for this episode, which will air on January 5th. I hope that you all have a great holiday season. Please, if you don't mind, take a few minutes to go into iTunes and rate and review us. Share the podcast with your friends so we can get more eyes on the case. And if you want to contribute to our efforts, you can always do so through Patreon at patreon.com/slash truth and justice. Make sure you send in your questions and comments for our Friday follow-up episode either to our email, theories at truthandjusticepod.com, through our Facebook page, the Truth and Justice Podcast Fans page, or you can follow along on Twitter at Truth Justice Pod. You can always leave us a voicemail, 24 hours a day, seven days a week at 269-224-2833. However you do it,